So here we are again for part two in our kind of very slow walk through the Bible looking at uh, eschatology. Um, now I say very, very slow because last time we took an hour and a half to go through three chapters. And uh, we're going I think this might be about ten sessions to do this. Uh, that's my guess. And uh, by the end of session two, we're going to be 15 chapters through 1,189 chapters of the Bible. We'll get very slow, but that's fine. Yeah, no, we, we are going to take it, we are, I think, unnecessarily slow, and we'll see why, because I think there's some really foundational things, and tonight is very much a Bible out kind of night, so uh, do have your Bible, uh, will it, uh, yeah, raring to go. So I thought it'd be good to just kind of first go over some things that we talked about last time, just so those things are fresh in our mind, and for people who weren't here, maybe just to help catch things up on this. So I've called this Last Things Last Time. So we looked at last time eschatology. Does someone want to chuck out a definition of eschatology? Anyone remember? Study of last things. Yeah, study of last things, perfect. Anyone remember teleology? Purpose, yeah. Purpose of things, a, a thing's purpose or end. Protology? Yes, the first things. So we looked at those terms last time. Uh, I'll just summarise this very quickly. This is the big thing we talked about, the fact that eschatology as a topic is much broader than just what the world will be like when the world ends uh, or when it's going to end. It's, it's much broader. And you might remember that we looked at this quote from Keith Matheson. Eschatology in a broader sense, however, concerns what Scripture teaches about God's purposes in Christ for history. As such, eschatology does include a study of the consummation of God's purposes at the end of history, but it also includes a study of the stages in the unfolding of those purposes. Does that, everyone remember that? Yeah. yeah, so eschatology is very broad. It, you can talk about eschatology from Genesis, you can talk about it from the New Testament onwards. You, there's, there's the whole of history is eschatological. We talked a bit about personal eschatology. We don't need to say much on this. We'll talk about. We'll have a whole session devoted to personal eschatology. And then the, the big thing. Let me just load up the slide and then we'll, I'll talk through it. Do you remember the kind of the big things we took from Genesis one to three were that God created a world which is good. So creation is good. That creation we saw creation has a telos. It has a purpose. It had an end for which God made it, which was the display of God's glory, uh, and that mankind, Adam and Eve, were given that task to spread the glory of God over all of creation, and they had an eschatology. If, if Adam and Eve were faithful, they could eat from the tree of life, they would receive eternal life in a transformed world. But we saw that they failed at that task, and the big shift is that death enters in. Physical death. Now people are subject to dying. Um, sin, untangling of God's order comes in. They are exiled from the garden. But we saw very briefly in Genesis 3.15. Let's just turn there because it's such an important passage. Genesis chapter 3. Does someone just want to read out verse 15 for us? Yes, awesome. Thank you, Joseph. So God promises, having just sinned, 
first sin happening, humankind now being subject to God's curse, God says, but the serpent's head is going to be crushed by the seed of the woman. So very early on, the serpent is told, you may have the victory today, but you don't get the victory overall. So that the serpent's defeat is prophesied through the seed of the woman. Um, I didn't say this last time, and I don't know why, but um, Barvink makes a point, which I really, really like, um, that... Oh, no. That notice that Eve's name changes in line with hope. So he makes this comment that Eve, uh, sorry, sorry, when she first comes onto the scene, she's just called woman, uh, which the, the Hebrew word Adamah, which just means from Adam. And so she's first named from man. But then after the promise is given that she will be the one through whom the one who, uh, who's going to crush the serpent's head will come, Adam changes her name to Eve, which means the, um, the mother of the living. So Barvin makes this point that the hope and expectation that God has announced in that promise is so revolutionary that her name changes in hope and expectation. She's no longer just from man. She's the mother of the living one. So, or mother of life, rather. I think that's a great point. So, with that said, we're going to dive into uh, our topic for tonight. So tonight, if you look at the study aims... Uh, and unpack that theme of sin and disentanglement from Genesis 3. And we're going to look at the centrality of the covenant with Abraham for forming our uh, eschatology. Now, I, I just want to make this point. This is, I say this probably more for myself than anyone else. This is not a study of the theology of Genesis. There are so many interesting things just chucked out every now and again in Genesis, which I would love to just spend some time and stopping. We are focusing specifically on eschatology, so all the interesting things that come up. If you want to ask, ask. I can't guarantee I'll answer, but uh, we're not going to look at everything, so yeah, there are going to be things we miss. We're just going to kind of get a broad overview. So I think first thing, let's just in groups. You don't have to read every single verse. You don't have to take in every single word, but just read Genesis 4 to 6, even if it's just overviews, even if it's just flicking through. And just note with the people around you, what kind of things do you notice? What kind of marks these sections? Write them down on your handout, and then we'll talk about them afterwards. So just have a few minutes for that, please, to see the whole thing untangled. Yeah, uh, anything else? Pardon? Yes, and this is a point that I want to just jump on quickly. Because um, notice, what does God say the protection is on Cain? Right, so God sets the standard of, of protection. If judgment is, if anyone attacks him, judgment shall be taken on them sevenfold. Notice something that's very subtle but very significant. I'll just bring this on. So here we got the killing of, Cain, uh, of Abel by Cain, and then the story there of uh, that's William Blake's painting of uh, Lamech's song t- to his wives. Notice in um, verse twenty-three. So. The context is Lamech here uh, is married to women, so that's another thing. We see polygamy for the first time, despite Genesis 2 making it clear that the, that the order was for one man and one wife. So there's polygamy for the first time. And then Lamech comes along, and his son, in verse 22, uh, rather his grandson, Lamech's grandson, 
is the first person to form weapons. He forged all the tools of bronze and iron. So we've got warfare now. And then in verse 23, he says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech, 77 times. So it's a really subtle thing where he's not only saying I've murdered someone, but he's saying I set the standards of justice. God was the one who set the standard of justice for seven times on Cain, but Lamech says, well, the power's in my hands now, I'm the one with the weapons. So it's a, it's a really subtle way, but in these, in these stories, we've just got kind of a loosening at every step away from God's uh, order and control and sovereignty over this. Um, so there, there, I think, there, I think the big, the big things are. Um, if we also just look at the genealogy in chapter five. Uh, so let me just read a few and then see if you can spot the thing that's strange. What do you not normally hear in a genealogy that you hear in this one? When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he was named Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years. Then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, he lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enosh lived 850 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, he lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. What's in there that's not normally in a genealogy? Well, you do find that in some genealogies. Look at the last thing that it keeps saying. And they died. And they died. That doesn't appear in any other genealogy. So that the point here is being put on the fact that, bear in mind, when did death come in? Death came in with sin, and now we're being reminded that every time a generation comes along, and they died, and they died, and they died, until you get to Enoch, who walks with God faithfully, and it's, it's this odd thing. I think we often read it as though he was ascended to heaven. Maybe he did. I'm not saying that he didn't. But it doesn't actually say that he ascended. It just says he walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. I'm not saying that I have this, but an argument could be made that this is kind of a euphemism for death, but on purposely not painting it in the same light because he was walking faithfully with God. Now, it could be that he just didn't die and went to heaven. That's you know, possible. But the emphasis here is, is the connection on sin and death. So you, we start the story in paradise, they then leave the garden, and then we have an untangling of the creation that God was good. So bear, bear this in mind, this is really important. If you think of creation as a canvas of righteousness, there was a pinprick of unrighteousness. It was just taking a fruit. But then from that, the whole thing started to unravel. It's not like Adam and Eve sinned and then suddenly thorns just came up, wrapping around, and people were murdering each other left, right, and centre. It was a gentle unpicking of God's order. That's really important. We're going to come back to that a number of times. So there, I think, the the big themes. Then when you get to Genesis 6, it it speaks in very um, strong terms. You know, verse 5, God saw how great the wickedness of the human race uh, had become. Uh, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Uh, 
Who wants, who wants to spend a bit of time talking about the sons of God marrying the daughters of men at the beginning of chapter 6? Yeah? What? Okay. Let me give you my humble opinion. Um, so, so me and Andy disagree on this, and we've had a number of uh, discussions. So you can either you know, choose Team Joshua or Team Andy. I'm not offended. Uh, obviously, the classic interpretation is that the sons of God are angels, and they um, saw uh, human women and thought, oh, they're nice, and then they slept with them, and then you end up with the Nephilim. Um, I, I really don't think that's what's going on here for a number of reasons. One, angels haven't been mentioned once yet. It would be really strange just as a bolt from the blue and then to just call them the sons of God rather than angels. The second thing is the Nephilim are already there. So it says this happened in the days when the Nephilim were on the earth. Uh, so they're not the result of this. They are just, this is a time frame. But we have been introduced to two seeds so far. The seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. And what we've seen is that not, that's not necessarily a biological thing. So Cain and Abel have the same mother and father, and yet one represents the serpent, one represents the woman. So this is about covenant loyalty. Uh, I would take the position, and I'm by no means the only person who does this, that the sons of God is, as in other places in the Bible, a, um, a byword for God's faithful people. So the, the Sethites, in other words, that the priestly people... And the daughters of men is being used as a euphemism for um, people who are outside of uh, the covenant. Unfaithful people, which, as we've seen, there are plenty of. So essentially, the modern-day parallel would be um, Christians marrying non-Christians. So it's not a intergenetic breeding, if that makes sense. It's what Paul calls an unequally, unequal yoking. Uh, feel free to disagree with me, but... If that's right, then obviously that adds one of the sins is even God's faithful people are now mixing like Solomon did. Solomon's great sin is he married lots of women who turned his heart away from the Lord. So I think that's what's going on. Um, But, you know, disagree with me, I'm not hurt. Uh, So the, the point that's being made in this section of Genesis is that downward spiral. Things are going down the pan. And there's a quote which I just think sums it up so brilliantly uh, from Gerhardus Voss. He says this, The downward tendency of sin is clearly illustrated in order that, subsequently, in the light of this downward movement, the true divine cause of the upward cause of redemption might be appreciated. So in other words, God is... This is kind of what Romans 1 talks about. God is kind of loosening his grip on sin, just letting it go a little bit so that we can see what it's doing to the world, so we can see what it's doing to each other, so we can see what it looks like unbridled, so that redemption and what God is going to do with that broken world can be more appreciated. So if God had said the promise in Genesis 3.15, see the woman's going to come, cross the serpent's head, and then the next child that Eve had was Jesus and defeated Satan, yeah, that, that would be the end of the story. But we'd be missing a whole lot of ways that God is going to bring glory to himself, that God is going to work that story out, that God is going to show the total depravity that sin is. So I think that's a really good uh, point, but let's, let's carry on through this section, because the next thing we come to is Noah's Ark. Now notice that it's, it says that, well it implies that 
Noah is basically the only righteous person on the earth at this time. So that's how bad things have got. So if you're ever worried about the state of Christianity in this country, just remember, Noah was in a significantly worse position. Um, and I love the way that he, uh, second, um, sorry, First Peter talks about Noah, the Spirit of Christ in him, preaching to all those around a message that was completely unheard and unheeded, but was for us. I mean, so profound. So we get the story of the, the flood. I mean, as I say, I'd love to just spend some time going through this, but we can't, unfortunately. But the flood, as we talked about last time, is the end of the world. I mean, in a very real sense, that is the world ending. So much so that, as we saw Peter in Second Peter, calls the world before the flood, the world that then was. It's almost like he's putting a wedge between that world and our world. So, when Noah comes out of the ark in Genesis 9, if we turn there and get ready to do a bit of reading, there's a few things to note. Um, so the world ended, and a new world was born. And yet, it's the same world. So I think that's, that's just important to, to focus on. So let's just, uh, can we just read by ourselves, so there's going to be a Bible reading night tonight, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 17. All right, so I'll, I'll read it and assume that you'll be done around the same time, but if you're not, then you can say I'm not done yet. Okay, let's go. Yeah, covenant's made. Yeah, it's not going to be destroyed by a flood again. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Brilliant. Yeah, so remember we called, uh, oh, you guys were in South Africa last time. So that, that bit in Genesis 1 where it talks about have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds in the heavens, and, and uh, rule over the earth, that we call this the, the cultural mandate. You don't have to call it that, but that's what it's called. Um, so you have a re-expression re of the cultural mandate there in Genesis 9. But with, notice that when you pair that with what Debbie said, there's nothing about sin in Genesis 1. There's nothing about, and when this happens, or... or there's no kind of turning back to God because the world's already in a state of bliss. But this time, that dominion mandate also comes with that. And when people start murdering each other, this is what you need to do about it. It's an interesting point. A anything else, or should we move on? I'll wait for one more thing. Rainbows. Do you just like rainbows? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Covenant signs, I think, are really important to understand because uh, we're not, we don't very, really think symbolically very much these days. We like everything to be very literal. If we do have any symbols, it tends to just be kind of tradition. Like when the coronation happens in a few weeks, I think we're all going to be kind of blown away by the pomp and ceremony. These used to be very normal things to, to express things that were important in symbol. Uh, and covenant signs are a real opportunity, I think, for us to dig deeper into the Bible. Like, for instance, why is the covenant sign that God made with Adam and Eve after they sinned, clothing them in animal skins? We could go into it, but we're not going to. But there's a lot of symbolism in there. Uh, the rainbow, again, I mean, in English we, we retain in Hebrew that it's called a rainbow. And it's a bow as in a bow and arrow. So what's the symbol that God's hung up a bow in the sky? Yeah, well, there's a whole load of answers. Some people say... I don't agree with this, but some people say 
It's the symbol that the bow is now pointing upwards. Next time there's going to be a judgment for sin, it's going to be the arrow is going to hit God. That's what some people say. I don't really agree with that. Some people say it's just God hanging up his battle bow. Interesting. But nonetheless, there's some symbolism there. That's cool. Okay. So, a few things, a few ways that Genesis 9 should inform our eschatology. Creation, this place, this place where we live, this is the place where God manifests his judgment and his salvation. So, it was through a flood that the full punishment of sin was felt. So, in the same way, we are very good at thinking about the spiritual effects of sin. You know, we often hear people talk about the spiritual death, but we, we often forget that in Genesis 1 to 3, the death that comes in with sin is death, death. So, over every grave, there lies a, a sign, here lies a sinner, in other words. And, and in the same way, God pouring judgment over the world, it shows that this is where God is, this is the arena for God to show his judgment and salvation. Okay. We talked about the fact that God is never going to flood the world again. And I've just put here, God will not deal with sin in the same way next time. Now, do they not have any clue what I mean by who is being taught here? No? Okay. Let me put it like this. What happens after the flood? Are people no longer sinners? So did the flood achieve its intended outcome? For about five minutes. I mean, that's what the story in Genesis... The story in Genesis 9 does exactly later is show a story about a really bad sin. And by the way, I mean, just for some detail, because the story in Genesis 9 about the sons of Noah is often a bit confusing. Um, the phrase that he looked on his father's nakedness, this is the same Hebrew phrase in Leviticus when it, the, the prohibition against sleeping with one's mother. To do so is to look on your father's nakedness. So what's probably going on here is he finds Noah drunk this is a pretty nasty story, really. Um, so, it, it, tend, you know, it, it worked for about five minutes until Noah planted his vineyard. So I think the point there is, no, it didn't. Now, I say who is being taught here, because I don't think for a minute that God thought, oh, drat, that didn't work. Yeah, I thought that was going to deal with sin. It, as, I mean, the, the Bible says this multiple times. God does these things to teach us something. So, in other words, God is showing us that sin is not an issue in just behaviour. So it's not like if humanity gets a fresh start, we're no longer sinners. Sin is a heart issue. So, to just kill, to just destroy, is like pulling out weeds. The root's still in there, and it's just going to grow back. So God says, never again am I going to do this. I'm not just going to send a flood and destroy it. How is God going to deal with sin? He's going to go to the root of the issue. He's going to actually change hearts. So this in itself, that whole thing about I'm not going to cause a flood again, that is an eschatological thing about what God is going to do with sin. He's going to destroy the root of the issue, uh, not the fruits. And then, as uh, Jenny pointed out, God re-establishes that mandate given to Adam. So there's, there's quite a lot in just these chapters, would you agree? So I think that's uh, I think it's important uh, to to look at. But then, 
we've got this little interesting thing because, as we saw, we get this fresh start. We have a new creation. We have, you know, God's righteous one coming out of the ark, and it's like we're back in the Garden of Eden again. Except it all goes terribly wrong again. And then you find the same thing that we saw in Genesis 4 to 6, now happening again in Genesis 9 to 11. So we have a story about uh, inter-family sin, like we saw with Cain and Abel. Uh, And then we have a story in Genesis 11 about people trying to basically be their own god with the Tower of Babel. Now, this is important because this is going to come up again in Acts, if you remember. As part of sin, the nations are scattered. What's the big thing that happens in Acts? Acts 2. Tongues of fire. Anyone? Come on, I know people know it. Yes. Yes, exactly. So they said the nations are, are being regathered. We can hear it in our own tongue. What happened at Babel? We're trying to be our own gods, and no longer can they understand each other. But then in Acts, God has come to earth, you know, the Holy Spirit has come, and now many nations are gathered back together. So this is, this is important for how we understand eschatology, because when they say, what's going on here? What's this about you preaching to lots of people and hearing you? Peter says, well, the Bible says, in the last days. So, this is important for later on in the story, but uh, let's not go on too much about it. But the the story basically is, yeah, God scatters people. So, things are pretty bad again. And once again, like Genesis 6, we're back at the point where there is only one person who is found to be righteous. And that is... Abraham, yes. Oh, oh, I forgot to say this earlier. Sorry, let me ask this question now. We can talk about it in our groups, I suppose, or, we, or I could just ask it. Why wasn't the flood the end of the story? What would be wrong with God just destroying everyone, including their own family? He knew what would happen afterwards. So, if sin is dealt with finally by just everything being destroyed, that's effectively God saying, ah, fine, you win. Which, you know... He's allowed to do. God can do what he wants. But I think the Bible makes it pretty clear that God's a God who sticks to his promises. So if God has said, no, 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 the serpent is not having this one, then I do believe that the serpent is not having this one. So God does not allow that victory, and so the flood is not the end of the story. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, we end up back where we did in Genesis 6, with the call of Abraham. So, if you see that quote that's on your handout from Gihadas Foss that I read earlier, I just love the way that he words it. The cause of the upward cause of redemption might be appreciated. So, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at that upward uh, cause. I wonder if now might be a good time. Does, it, does people want to take five minutes? Stretch your legs, fresh your brain a bit before we jump in. Let's, okay, let's take five minutes. So if we come back at 25 past... So we're going to look at Abraham, next in the story, or Abraham. Now, I want to make this point when we come to Abraham, the story of Abraham. He functions as a foundation upon which all the other pillars of God's promises rest. And this comes out in a number of ways in the, in the Bible. So if you read Galatians 3, for instance, 
Paul deals with the issue of what, what is the function of the law, and if you look at the way he argues, he says, well, we have to assume the primacy of the Abrahamic covenant, and then we can work out what the law was for. So again, that's just one example, but it's really interesting the way that he sees, well, we know that the Abrahamic covenant is the absolute basis, and so everything else has to fit on that. So, I mean, it's a great place to go with our eschatology. So, uh, let's, let's look at some of these things. So, I would like to read all of it, but it's just going to take too long. But the story of Abraham uh, comes through in Genesis 12 to Genesis 17. Uh, they are fantastic chapters to go through. Um, again, one of those places where I would love to stop and just do a kind of a theology of Genesis. But alas, we are doing the eschatology that we can find in there. So, let's just look at um, the promises that God makes in Genesis 12 17. Uh, so, we see that God, if, if you have Genesis 12 open, I'll just, I'll just uh, refer to these every now and again. So, Genesis 12, verse 2, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So in, just in that passage we see that Abraham will be made into a great nation. Bear in mind at this point he doesn't even have a child, and yet he's told that he's going to have so many that they're going to be a great nation. Uh, his name will be great. Uh, God will give him a divine protection. All families on the earth will be blessed through him. Uh, a little further on in Genesis 15, he is given the land of Canaan. So, yeah, still in chapter 12, um, it says, uh, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And he... Uh, oh, that's still not the bit I was looking for. There's a bit where he, God sets the limits of the land. He says, From the Euphrates to... Uh, Sorry, this is uh, not looking great for me. Uh, it, um, it might be in Genesis 15. But the point is that God kind of gives him a strip of land. Uh, and nowadays we either know it's Palestine or Israel or Canaan, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And again, he says, uh, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in the country. That is not their own, but they will come out with great possessions and they will come here. They will dwell in this land. Oh, here we go. Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites. So, God kind of stretches the limits. And then in Genesis 17, God makes a promise to Abraham. In verse 6, I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. So we have these promises. Uh, Abraham will be made into a great nation, his name will be great, God will give him divine protection, all families on earth will be blessed through him, the land of Canaan will be given to his seed, and kings shall come from him. Now of these six, 1, 4, 5, and 6 are particularly relevant for forming our eschatology. I hope you will... Agree with me and see why. So let's just spend some time on that first one. He will be made into a great nation. What is the nation that Abraham's descendants are made into? 
Israel, yes, that's right. They don't know what bonus points, they don't know what Israel means. Pardon? Those that struggle with God. So Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord. Isn't it great that every other time an angel of the Lord appears in scripture, they say, fear not, don't be afraid. And the person's like, ah. When, when Jacob sees an angel, he's like, right. <laughs> anyway, so afterwards God calls him Israel, the one who wrestles with the Lord. So Israel are those who wrestle with the Lord. And I just want you to notice this. So if we just go back to the story, Adam is told that he needs to multiply. And so you have Adam, and in him is represented all humanity. So when Adam sins, who gets affected? All of humanity. Abraham kind of has the same kind of connection to Israel. So that so people talk about um, Israel being like a corporate Adam. Like if Adam was a group of people, it would be Israel. So liberal scholars, I don't agree with this at all, but liberal scholars will say the book of Genesis was written in about 500 BC and it was uh, you know, a story about God's holy person and God's holy place being taken into exile but then being restored. They would say, oh, that, you know, that looks a lot like the Israel story. And so they'd say that Adam was made in the image of Israel. I think if we believe the Bible is God's word, it's got to be the other way around. Israel is a corporate Adam. That story mirrors the first story, not vice versa. And one of Adam's roles, from what we saw last time, was to be a priest. And so it's unsurprising that Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests. Now this doesn't mean that everyone in the kingdom is a priest, but rather it means, so what's the priest's job? The priest's job is to intercede, is to stand in the gap between God and fallen people. So Israel's job is to be that to the nations. Israel's job is to intercede between God and the Gentile nations around them. And this is something we see quite a lot come out in the Bible. Israel are condemned for failing to be the priest to those around them. So they're made into a great nation. That's one important thing. All the families of the earth will be blessed through them. So what does this mean? It means that Israel is for the world. Like we just saw then. They are to be priests to the world. And so there is a, there is a telos. Remember that word, the teleology? The telos of the Abrahamic covenant is all the world is blessed. All the families of the world are blessed through Abraham. This covenant has not been fulfilled unless this happens. That's a big deal. Uh, Vineyard and Wilmers. Does anyone remember, I mean, I'm not going to be offended if not, but does anyone remember a few months ago I preached on um, the vineyard song in Isaiah where it talks about how God has called Israel to be a vineyard and he comes looking for grapes to make wine with but all he finds is sour grapes so he destroys the vineyard. This is this kind of image that, not, not the judgment and destruction bit, but the point there is that when you make a vineyard there is far more wine than can be enjoyed by just the owner. You make a vineyard to bless those outside the vineyard. And in that story, the vineyard grows and grows. And so the point here is that Israel is to be like a vineyard with wilderness all around, and that vineyard is to extend and to bring that sweet wine. Again, look in the Bible. Wine is so often used as an image for God's saving of the world. 
So that, that wine that transforms the world until the wilderness is completely gone. Um, so that, that, yeah, all the families of the world to be blessed through them. Uh, I, I remember, just stop me at any point if you want to say anything. The land of Canaan given to his seed. So, we have the world. Now here's the question I want to ask. Is this promise just about this tiny little strip of land? So it's, it's, it's quite common. Uh, some people say yes. Yeah, it's just that land. That's what God promised them. That's what that's theirs. So, so nowadays, for instance, the way that it comes out in a political issue is with Israel and Palestine in that conflict. Now, I don't have an opinion on that necessarily, except to say that theologically... Oh, no, no, I'll say this in a minute. I'll say this in a minute. Okay, I'm going to say... This land, this strip of land, is only a symbol. Now, I think that there are clues to that in the text itself, being that when the Bible talks in other places about from the river to the body of Egypt, it's using it as a description of everywhere. So Psalm 72, when it talks about the Messiah, says his dominion will be from the sea to the river. And that means everywhere. Right? Uh, plus, in Hebrew, the words for east and west, north and south, all those kind of things are real places. So that the Hebrew word for south is Negev. Why? Because the Negev is in the south. The Hebrew word for east is rising. Because what happens in the east? So Hebrew uses very concrete words and expressions to talk about far-reaching things. So when Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, he is taken our transgressions from us. The words used there refer to physical locations. So are we mistranslating it when we say as far as east is from the west? No, because the point is, it's just describing an infinite space. So in the same way, in the text itself, I would say I think that God is promising more than just that land. But I don't just have to go on implications because the Bible explicitly says it's more than that. Romans 4 says it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world. And the Greek word used there, cosmos. In other words, all creation, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. So Abraham was promised more than just this strip of land. This strip of land was like, if you think about it, it's like a tithe. It's just a, a small symbol. So, so that what I was going to say is, nowadays with the political issue... Um, it, it may be tempting to kind of say, well, you know, the land is Israel's, they, they have a claim to it. I think, okay, fair enough, they might, but it, theologically, we can't make that case. So, uh, we might, for instance, look at the Kurds and say they have a right to their land. Yeah, maybe. That's the same kind of issue. I'm not going to go and find a Bible passage to talk about why the Kurds need that land. So, because the land itself is more than just that little strip. And so I want to say that the land of... Well, I don't want to say. The Bible says that that land is only a symbol for the whole world. That's what Romans 4 is saying. So that the Abrahamic covenant promises that the world will be given to Abraham's descendants. Okay. Kings come from him. Um, yeah, anyone read this verse before? 
Genesis 49, verse 10. Anyone know the context? So, Jacob, or Israel, as he's now known, is dying and is blessing. He's doing the, the patriarchal blessing before death that we see. And um, he goes through each of his sons and he comes to Judah. And he says to Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So Judah is going to be the kingly tribe, in other words, until he to whom it belongs shall come. So the scepter is not going to depart until the king to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So in Genesis 49, we have this promise that a king is going to come, who is going to take the scepter that Judah has been holding, and the obedience of the nations will be his. Uh, there's an there's a, uh, analogy that G.K. Bill uses, which I think is absolutely brilliant. He says, if a spaceship is coming to Earth, it, says, it might say, it's a little blue blob with some green dots on it. Which is true. But as you get closer, you say, oh, there's also some you know, great oceans and there's trees. And then as you get closer, you can see the, the faces on the people. Saying, it's a blue blob with some green dots on it isn't wrong. It's just looking at it from a distance. The closer you get, the more the details start to be fleshed out. And he says, this prophecy, this is like a, this is like a blue blob prophecy. When you go through the story of the Bible and it starts to be clarified more, as a Christian, you read that and go, well, I know exactly what that's talking about. A king who's going to come in the obedience of the nation shall be his. I love it. But the point there is that, um, yes, this, this, bear in mind, this is way later than the story of Abraham. But nonetheless, they've not forgotten this promise that uh, through Abraham's family, this king is going to come. So let's just do a quick um, eschatology kind of wrap-up so, just from what we've seen in Genesis 1 to 17, what must our eschatology include? It must include the centrality of this creation. Sin will not win. It must include the whole world being blessed by Abraham's seed. Now, bear in mind, if that doesn't happen, this promise has not been fulfilled. Read Galatians 3, read Galatians 4. This promise is being fulfilled. The receiving of the world as an inheritance, as I say, this is what this is what Paul says in Romans four. This is the the inheritance that Abraham was promised. Uh, and sorry, just on this point as well, notice what Jesus says: "Blessed are the meek, for they will." Yeah, it's not just inherit this bit of land; it's the whole earth. This this strip of land is just like a down payment. Death will be dealt with. We saw this from Genesis 3. Death does not belong. Death came in through the serpent. But death is going to be dealt with. And let me, just, let me just pause there, actually, because when we talk about personal eschatology in a few weeks, let me just give a preview for then. One of the ways that we fall short in our personal eschatology is that we often think death being dealt with is, I get to go to heaven. Which is a good thing. How wonderful it is to know that our loved ones who have died in the Lord are in the, pre in the presence of the Lord and in heaven. But that's not death being dealt with. That's death being subverted. Remember, over every grave, there is that expression, here lies a sinner. So we'll talk about that when we get to personal eschatology. Adam's task fulfilled. Adam gave a task, he re-gave it to Noah, and he re-gave it to Abraham and his sons. And now 
so far in the story, this is Abraham's, um, Israel's task. And then finally, a king coming to whom all the nations will be subject. So if our eschatology, details we can work out later, we'll, we'll get there, don't worry. But if our eschatology doesn't have these six points, then it's not being formed by exegesis and what the Bible has to say. So, as I say, let's just go over the list again. It has to include the centrality of this creation. It has to include the whole world being blessed by Abraham's seed. It has to include the receiving of the world as an inheritance. It has to deal with death. It has to have Adam's task fulfilled. And it has to have a king coming to whom all the nations will be subject. That's just the first 17 chapters of the Bible. There's a, there's a whole lot more to come. But, uh, let's open up. Anyone, I mean, if... So that widening and narrowing thing is actually a really good symbol, I think. So again, Gerhard Svotsky, I mentioned earlier, uses this brilliant analogy where he says, the, if we think of salvation history like a tree, the, 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 early, the early stages with Abraham are like the roots, where it goes really, really wide and really, really deep. And then it starts to narrow and narrow into the trunk. But that trunk is providing a necessary stability so that the widest and biggest part of the leaves can come out and fall bloom. So we are going to see narrowing. So at first it was just the seed of the woman. And then it's going to be someone from Abraham's seed. And then when you get to Genesis 3, Paul says, so he's not talking about multiple people. He's talking about Christ. So again, it's like, it's kind of blue dot with green dots. You get closer and you get closer and closer and then you realise, oh, this is, this is all about Christ. So I don't know if that answers the, the question. Does that answer the question? Let's, let's go through these. The centrality of this creation. How many times does the New Testament make it absolutely clear Christ came into this creation truly as man and died as man? So, so John says, the one who is antichrist is this, the one who denied Jesus came in the flesh. So the antichrist isn't some big end times figure. The, the antichrist is your, is your liberal pastor who says that Jesus was just a moral teacher. The whole world being blessed by Abraham's seed. Who's Abraham's seed? Jesus. So Paul's point in Genesis, in Galatians 3, there's no longer a man or woman, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, we're all one in Christ Jesus. That, that Abraham's seed, Jesus, is how the world is going to be blessed through Christ. Receiving the world as an inheritance, it's Jesus who, who offers that to his people. It's him who says, blessed are the poor, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is the one who has the authority to hand that in it. Again, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it says, talking about his present reign now, he must reign until all of his enemies have been put under his feet, then the last enemy to be defeated is death. When that happens, he will deliver the kingdom to the Father. So in other words, he is perfecting this world now. That, that's his task. And when he's done that, when he's brought the new creation, that inheritance, he gives it to his people. So, uh, death dealt with. How was death dealt with? brilliant phrase, the death of death and the death of Christ. He met death in the grave and killed it. Again, that's a big thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Who fulfilled Adam's task? When we see God's, 
God's chosen person battling with the serpent and their temptation, telling them to eat. Am I talking about Genesis 3 or am I talking about uh, Luke 4, Jesus in the wilderness? Jesus fulfills the story of Adam. Jesus is the one who's fulfilling Adam's task. And finally, Jesus is the king to whom all the nations will be subject. So, so all of these are fulfilled in Jesus. It's just that at the moment we're dealing with a blue blob with green dots. We'll bleed into the personal eschatology for a bit, but we can talk about the same thing twice, that's fine. Um, The day of resurrection, when everyone is raised from the dead. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul does not treat it as though Jesus' resurrection is a one-off event, and also one day everyone will be raised from the dead. He says that Jesus' resurrection, the, the word he uses, is the first fruits. First fruits of a harvest, so you know, you've got your grapes growing, you get your first fruits, they come in first. When, when everything else is harvested, you don't say, oh, we did two harvests, the first fruits and everything else. That's one harvest that came in two stages. So in 1 Corinthians 15, the day of resurrection is one event, and it's just that Christ has broken into history and began that event early. Does that make sense, or is that making it more complicated? So in other words... Death is dealt with when believers rise from the dead. So to put it another way, again, this is massively bleeding into what we're going to talk about later, but you can just miss that week. Um, If we picture this over... okay, So I can say, I am forgiven. Does everyone believe me? Okay. I have been justified before God by faith. Okay? If I say that to the unbeliever, what proof can I give? Okay, let me, let me further it. I then die. This is what happened in the first generation of Christians. They were all saying, we've been forgiven, we've been set free, and then they started to die. So go to 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the issue there. People are dying. I thought we were forgiven, I thought we were set free from the bonds of sin and death. So over every grave, there is the expression, here lies a sinner. And yet, we were saying that they were forgiven. Okay, but here's the thing. They're not going to stay there. They're going to be raised. So Paul, what's the word that Paul uses to describe believers' death? Sleep. Because when you sleep, you wake again. So when you go to sleep... You might put clothes out for the next day. You might put an alarm clock on. You go into, the, into bed, into that zone, with expectation that you'll be coming out again. So Paul talks about believers' death in the same way. Yeah, it looks like to the world out there that they weren't really forgiven, but that's what the world thought when they were alive anyway. On the day of resurrection, there is going to be no doubt that God has truly and finally set us free from the power of sin and death. So a really good analogy, I think, is someone might be in, in custody and put in a jail cell. They, they will be vindicated from court, but it's not as though as the judge's gavel comes down, the jail doors open and they walk out. It's going to be a period of kind of paperwork and admin, and then finally, right, you can be released now. I think it's, an analogy can be like, at the moment, we, we are in the grave, 
while the paperwork is being sorted. And then we come out. So, so death is, we can say, like Paul does, death has lost its sting. Death has lost its victory. And yet, Paul also says, when he's talking about the, the day of resurrection, and on that day will come to pass the saying, O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? So it's kind of it's what we call kind of a now and a not yet. Death has been defeated, in a sense. Christ has risen from the dead. Our resurrection is guaranteed. And yet, in a sense, it hasn't because we still die and we still lose our loved ones and we still say goodbye for a long time. But that goodbye is a temporary goodbye. Does that, does that make sense? We'll talk about this again later in a lot more depth. But, uh... and that, and that, uh, resurrection is for all humanity, not just for Christians. Yeah, but the, the point that Jesus makes in John uh, 14, he, he calls it a resurrection of the just and the unjust, a, right, a resurrection yeah. to life and a resurrection to judgment. So, in the same way now that we could kind of say, are you living or are you surviving? We, we can kind of agree, there's, we agree that there's kind of degrees to quality of life. The life that marks the resurrected believer is fundamentally different from those who are resurrected to judgment. So, uh, I, I, would, I would say, I, I do agree with this, that I would say that the reason that unbelievers are resurrected is to simply witness the vindication of believers. It's so that I don't want to make it too much of like a... I don't think God's like a 10-year-old child on the playground, but in a sense it's kind of... See? They weren't lying. I have forgiven them. They are justified in the sight of many. Um, but, you know, we can do all those details another time. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Nikki, you look like you're postured, like you've got something to say. No? Maybe you were. We can talk about it. Okay, well, if you do want to come and say anything afterwards, that's fine. But I will hold you against it forever. Let's do a quick recap. Uh, so we did a quick recap of Genesis 1-3, to uh, going over what we did last week. By the way, last, last time's deep dive is on the, the podcast and uh, Church Suite and stuff now if you do want to grab it. We looked at the story of Noah and uh, the end of the world and its relation to eschatology, and we did the eschatological content of the promises made to Abraham. Cool. Let's finish. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, let, me, let me just pray, really quick. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a world in which you intend to show your glory. Lord, we do just uh, repent afresh that we do so often turn from uh, your law and we do give in to our sinful nature. Lord, we just pray that you would empower us to uh, live the resurrection life now, to fight against sin and to be bound to Christ. Lord, we thank you for how you're transforming this world. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time.